Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marcia Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to Allison Carpenter, a senior at Howard University, about politics and HBCUs. Hello, Allison. Hi, how are you? It's so good to see you. Good to see you. Now, folks, this is a little different. Allison is not a student at Georgetown. She goes to Howard, and I met her through the Truman Scholarship, which I talk about endlessly on this podcast. (laughs) And you just blew me away in your Truman interview, your commitment to public service. And the first question I asked you was, do Black Lives Matter? And that was your question. And do Black Lives Matter and why, I think you asked. Did I ask that initially to start? That was the last question. That was the last question. The first question was why the Metro so jacked up. Oh, I thought the judge. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the most stressful 20 minutes of my entire life. I was, And I wanted answers. That morning, the Metro had made me late. I I really thought it was my fault. I was honestly like, oh, Lord, I've worked in government, but I don't know if I'm responsible for the Metro. You're not responsible for the Metro. But the reason why I asked you that question is because you are on your, what we call in D.C., the ANC, mm-hmm. which stands for what? The Advisory Neighborhood Commission. And um, what is that? The most hyper-local government, uh, that you, it's as local as it gets. Basically, we represent small districts called SMDs, single-member districts, about 2,000 people, and we talk about issues like, you know, why the trash isn't getting picked up on the right, at the right time, why there's a pothole on 7th Street. So very local government, um, but we also talk about important things like gentrification and economic development and uh, public schools, and so it gives really everyday people the chance to weigh in on issues affecting our city. So if I understand this, you're a full-time college student. Yes, ma'am. And you serve on your ANC. I served on my ANC. You yes, served ma'am. on your ANC. And how long was your term? Two years. So how does this happen? And you're not from D.C. You're from I'm, Ohio. I'm not, yeah. Which is cool. But <laughs> considering what it takes to be able to get that position and to make an impact in a community that in a lot of ways you're an outsider, mm-hmm. I would love to hear how you make that happen. Okay. Well, yeah, that was uh, difficult for me because I, w- I was w- worried that I would be labeled a carpetbagger, you know, mm-hmm. like someone just moving in and trying to take control. But um, the way I look at it is I may not be from D.C., but Howard University has been here since 1867. And when I ran, I was trying to represent uh, a large number of college students who had been left out of the process. Um, who, you know, we there were a lot of things that were happening with our community's demographics changing so quickly. And, you know, people who were coming into our communities wanted to change things about our campus. You know, we have our homecoming celebration that, you know, Howard is pretty known for. Yes, and yes, they are. there were a lot of people who were, well, why do they do it this way? Why do they have it here? Why can't they have it, you know, why can't they have their events elsewhere? And, you know, affordable housing is just evaporating, right? And so you have college students who live off campus who are, who generally live around the community, now live in Maryland, 45 minutes away. And so I realized that a lot of the issues that were affecting low-income African Americans in D.C., like, you know, residents of D.C., were also affecting Howard University students. So this is interesting. So the first job I got um, out of college after I graduated the University of Missouri Mm -hmm. was at the Harry S. Truman Scholarship Foundation, and I lived in Shaw. I lived at 909 O Street Northwest, and it was a studio apartment. It was expensive. It was like $675 a month. 
Now that apartment. <laughs> Whoa, expensive. Now that apartment. This was a while ago. Right. This was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, now that apartment would probably be over $1,000, and I probably couldn't even try to apply right. <laughs> to live in that building. But I remember um, living there, and that neighborhood was at that turning point. Mm-hmm. The convention center was slowly coming in. Mm-hmm. The old giant was still there, which is a grocery store in our area. And you could see the roots of the gentrification starting to be you know, planted. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also saw this incredibly vibrant community that mm-hmm. was able to hold on. Right. And so when I think about the year you started college was what year? 2013. So in 2013, that apartment would not be affordable to not only a college student, but a young person who just started working mm-hmm. in, in federal government. What, what was the neighborhood or what was the campus of Howard University on that first day of school for you? So I, there were it was a lot of construction going on, so mm-hmm. you could tell that something was shifting in the neighborhood. I joked um, with my mom that every time I come home for vacation and I come back to Howard, so there's a new building up, and um, that was a joke at one point. But really, we had you know two new dormitories that went up, then we had a new research building, and then there's three new condos that have just been you know. But those are different. Like so, some of the things are improvements on your campus, right? But what comes with it. Uh, well, there are improvements on our campus that are sub that are that we're paying for by gentrifying the community, and that's something as a student I've been vocal uh, vocal about. Our university is converting our real estate in D.C., and we're we ourselves as a university we're building luxury apartments around D.C. Um, it hurts to, as a Howard student who who doesn't want to see my university, you know, commit to gentrifying D.C. or being a part of gentrifying D.C. Um, but. I guess the economics of higher education are, are such, especially in HBCUs, are such that it requires us to make hard decisions. Well, let me talk a little bit about the HBCU component of mm-hmm. your education. Um, for those of you who have never used Google, HBCU <laughs> is a historically black colleges and college and universities. And if you have ever been on the campus of Howard, Spelman, Morehouse, Langston in Oklahoma, I'm going to give a shout out to Oklahoma. Um, can't forget my Oklahomans. Um, you know, Lincoln. Again, these schools have an incredible amount of pride. And if you read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they're often poised as these institutions that are in crisis. Mm -hmm. And so as a student, as a high school student growing up in Ohio, why were you pulled to an HBCU? Good question. Um, I I guess I was used to being in a black community. I come from Cleveland, Ohio, and I came from, you know, a really black neighborhood. Um, But I... I think that what I was longing for as a student from a low-income family, I wanted to be around black professionals. And um, so I had visited, you know, my fair share of PWIs or predominantly white institutions. For those who don't have <laughs> access to Google. Right. Um, and I and that's where I had my, my eyes set on, you know, I was going to go to an Ivy League school because that's what mom wanted, right? That's how she'd know that, you know, her first-generation college student had made, made it. it. Right. Yeah. And so I remember when I, when I arrived at Howard's campus, I was blown away. I saw all these men in their tailored suits, and I don't even know. I I, I saw the women, and like they're they're not like Howard is a school where you 
you think that they're, we're college students and they look like they could be like full time professionals. Like, Everyone's a model at Howard. And, yeah, Howard's so, second best. Just school. so you know, yeah, don't play around. Um, you know a Howard student when you see them. Yeah, this is a pulled together person. I'm like, why does why do everyone have why does everyone have a briefcase? Like, where do yeah, they people work? are not playing like, around. Right, I have my briefcase now. You have your briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> you have your briefcase. Right. I remember um, we were walking around Georgetown one day and there was a group of young black women mm-hmm. and usually nine out of ten times there's students I have and mm-hmm. they'll be like oh hi Professor Chatlin and my husband said oh those 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 young women didn't say hi to you and I said oh honey they don't go to Georgetown they, they go, go to, to Howard. Howard he goes how do you know I was like look they're so pulled together <laughs> right. no shade no shade listeners no, but it's just that but, it, but it is a way it is a sensibility mm-hmm. that I think is tied to a kind of tradition right. that um, HBCUs represent right. and I also think about the diversity in um, style and expression mm-hmm. of people on the the Howard campus right. but I was so unused to that you know yeah I especially growing a, in the Midwest right. the Midwest the no, no emphasis in that I'm from the same place. Right. And so I'd, I'd seen all these people that looked so polished, so put together, and then you hear them talk. You ask them a simple question, you know, how do you feel about the election coming up? And they'll give you a, a you know, a 20-minute dialogue about, you know, his, the history and how black people... They were just so well-versed on everything. And I just remember thinking to myself, I have to be like that. Give me four years. I need to be able to... to I need to look like this. I need to talk like this. Now, Thankfully, since I've been at Howard, I've you know found my own individuality and found <laughs> to be my own person. But um, it just being around a, a bunch of brilliant, motivated, ambitious um, black people—it's just so empowering. Um, no shade to PWIs, mm-hmm. but uh, just being in a place that affirms who you are. And did you get any resistance for the choice to go to Howard? From my mother, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, you know, she wanted me to go to Harvard. She wanted me to go to Ivy League. But when she came on Howard's campus, she felt the same thing that I felt. Um, and so I think that it was pretty clear that this is where I belong. Um, the people were genuinely interested in what you know. They didn't just ask, "Who are you? What do you want to do with your life? Where are you from? Where you know everyone wants to know what high school did you go to? You don't even you don't even know Ohio, but they want to know." exactly who you are because they care they wanted to know how they could help you accomplish your goals and so my mom was pretty you know set on that but everyone else back home who was like Allison has these amazing grades you know her her ACT scores were through the, why doesn't she go to a which is an interesting assumption but mm-hmm. so do all the other kids at Howard exactly that's, that's why the, they're Howard students right. and they don't is, get that people don't get that you know because uh, I'm old um, <laughs> I, I watched Different World when it first came on I know you guys watch it on like Naked Night or TV <laughs> One or whatever you know thing like you're like oh throwback to oh, Lord, when you yeah. were young but anyway but I remember um, Different World that that did that kind of cultural work mm-hmm. about HBCUs mm-hmm. and I mean everyone mm-hmm. was just blown away by this kind of depiction of black college life right. um, but there was one episode I remember so clearly where um there's a conversation about why would smart black students make this choice, and like it was yeah, like Whitley. Whitley is the way. Well, yeah, this one, and yeah. like you know, Whitley was dating this guy who went yeah. to Georgetown, and then it's like you know, and then Whitley's so privileged. Like, why do you go to this HBCU? And mm-hmm. she's like, well, this is this is where talent comes, mm-hmm. and I think that. Um, you know, increasingly we hear this message about mm-hmm. what does success look like. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that conversation has changed for centuries, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when a person says to you, well, you're so bright, mm-hmm. why would you go to Howard? Mm-hmm. How have you crafted a response to that asinine question? Well, one, I, uh, I explained to them that when 
when I was applying to other universities or when I visited other universities, I was the one, you know, smart black kid. And, you know, at first I, I really took comfort in that. Like, I am I am the the chosen black person to be mm-hmm. on the cover of their view book and to be on their website. And I am the one. Right. When you come to Howard and, I, and I'll, I'll contradict myself when I say you feel ordinary, like you mm-hmm. feel like, um, you know, you might be the valedictorian of your class and now you're in a classroom with 20 other valedictorians of their class, right? Because it, no longer are you exceptional in the sense that your academic record will set you apart because it's really the brightest, you know, people of color from across the world, not just the country, but the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Howard does a good job of affirming you for things that are not just your academic record. They, exp- you, I think at Howard, you learn that your value is not just connected to your ability to perform, Right, it's not your athletic talent or your academic talent, but who you are and what you bring. The, the things that you can add to a community aren't just tied to you know what you can do. And so I, I appreciate that. But anyone who believes that the the best and the brightest aren't at HBCUs clearly haven't been to an HBCU. And so um, I just invite them come come on Howard's campus. We uh, just. Two weeks ago, we hosted a bunch of private school counselors from across the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, a bunch of you know all predominantly white schools. They're they're advising their black students on where to go, and they're you know like, well, why should we send our students here? And then you know, I gave a speech, and then another student gives a speech, and they're like, oh wow, okay, yeah, yeah, we, we see that this is. And I also think that it, there's a real tension about. I mean, one of the worst. This is I love Twitter, but Twitter needs to die oh. when there's the HBCU versus, versus PWI, PWI conversation. Oh my god. I mean, top 10 things that go nowhere, right? Because there's so many factors on why you go to college. And also, it's a conversation that just, it's just so painful. I'm going to get trolled. I'm going to get so trolled after this. But everyone needs to stop it, you guys. We need to get free. We need to deal with policing. Like, there's so many things that are really important. There's a way for us to have the conversations about HBCUs and PWIs. It doesn't have to be HBCUs versus PWIs, Mm -hmm. right? Um, there, the fact is, PWIs have a lot more, you know, and resources. They can afford to give full scholarships to a lot more students of color. So I've never been the one to say, mm, "You self-hating black person, how dare you go to a PWI?" You know, right? But I, I think that we get sensitive about our mm-hmm. HBCUs because they have been so, you know, so they've been so consistently attacked by yes. mainstream and by, you know, people who doubt whether or not we're still relevant. You know, post Brown. Um, but so there's a need for us to defend it. I've seen some HBCU alum take it a little bit far, you know, and I and I, I cringe at that. But the fact is, we need every student of color be, have to have access to college. That's what I'm fighting for. Thurgood Marshall wasn't fighting so that you know black people could stay at HBCUs. He wanted us to have the choice to go to, you know, any any educational institution in the United States. And so that's what I'm here for. And I think that there's a counter to that. Like, so there's that. At this, the dumb conversation mm-hmm. on Twitter, but there's also this other element about um, the, the search for unity in a mm-hmm. place with so much diversity. Mm-hmm. So there is a way that I think at a PWI, um, black students or students of color feel like a need to have a proximity towards each other mm-hmm. because, like, you, you're it. There's eight of you, <laughs> right. and even if you you're not all friends, friends right. you're going to figure something out, right? right. Um, but I think what I've gleaned from my friends who go to HBCUs is that sometimes 
navigating the dynamics have a different kind of sensitivity to it because I think some people are drawn to HBCUs in a fantasy about what unity looks like. And so when you look at issues of class and gender and sexuality, it's the work that we all have to do. Exactly. But then it's it, but it then it gets framed in this different way. And I'm thinking about you know the the, the conversation about sexual assault at Spelman, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's the fear about outsider. Criticism. Outsider criticism yes, right. gaze, mm-hmm. but then also like, how do we get our house in order in this community? And what are the ways that you've seen, you know, you you or your friends have navigated? Mm-hmm. Like, what happens when there is disunity in this place that promises an opportunity for unity? Right, that's a great question. I don't pretend for a second that HBCUs or Howard specifically don't deal with, you know, the same, you know difficult problems that most colleges deal with. I think that at Howard, though, we take we have one less dimension to consider it through. You know, so race, I don't, this is a blanket statement, I try to avoid these, but I don't think there are too many African-American students who feel like they've been discriminated against on account of race. So it just removes one dimension. There's still every other dimension. There's still gender, there's still class, there's still, you know, sexual orientation, identity, there's still all of that. And I think that what it, the good thing about HBCUs is that it allows us to look at how people of color deal with these things just on a just on a, a micro level, and so how do how do African Americans talk about sexual orientation and, and gay rights, right? Not not how do college campuses deal with it, but how do Black folk do, deal with it? How do we talk about mental health on college camp or in our community? And so um, when we have these challenges, it forces us to come together and acknowledge like it's on us, right? There's no you know we can't say the white man is holding us back here or he's not giving us resources for mental it's really on us and so um i see what ha- what's happening at spelman and um i don't what i don't like though as i guess is the the fear about outside critique is i don't want them to look at hpcus and say well look look at what's going on no one's doing sexual I, assault right right like no, no one, college right, university right, there's no not a single place where like oh we're the model of transparency right help for survivors dismantling heteropatriarchy exactly. like nobody exactly. so everyone and needs so to have a seat i think that it's just when i think the hashtag which, which at first was raped at morehouse or raped mm. by morehouse that was that's it very was, powerful it was so powerful but it's just like there's already there's it's it's not about just the hashtag it's about the already the 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 decades of negativity associated with these HBCUs. People are already challenging whether or not we should exist. And so it's like we have to keep everything together. You know, we have to be twice as good and we can't let them throw any dirt on our name because, you know, that could be the end of us. And we've seen that happen. We've seen HBCUs that that were existed 100 years ago that are not here anymore. And so we are protective and that sometimes holds us back from really dealing with real issues. Um, so we got to work through that. We do. And so when you talk to your friends who went to PWIs after that freshman year <laughs> and you compare notes, it does it start to sound like, it start to look like oh, Twitter? Like, yeah, how did exactly you- <laughs> like Twitter. We had a support group for this. Like, honestly, like on Twitter, I saw so many people tweeting, like, I don't even know how to talk to my friends anymore because you, I don't know, something happens in that freshman year where your mind is just, I guess people say you're woke, but it's like a... I don't know. Like I couldn't even. I didn't even know how to engage with people who wouldn't recognize privilege. You know what I mean? But not. I couldn't oh, even. Oh, interesting. I, that, I don't even know if that's just a college thing. Mm-hmm. You know, because I know that other people experience. You know, an enlightenment during college. But uh, hearing folks back home talk about HBCUs will be a, an instant conversation ender. Like I can't even can't even engage them, but I can't explain it to them either because I say, hey, Howard did this for me and that and this, and they're like, what are you talking about? You have to see it. You have to experience it. You have to be near it in, in order to understand it. Um, but I tried to educate, and that 
that just gets so exhausting. Well, this is interesting because, um, you know, talk about this is very parallel to the opening of our conversation Mm -hmm. about DC's changes, right? Mm -hmm. So here you have an HBCU like Howard that has struggled financially, Mm -hmm. and here's this growth opportunity in real estate. Mm -hmm. If they just sell all the buildings to the, you know, highest bidder, Mm -hmm. then there's more opportunity. This is the logic. You're like, are you serious? I'm not serious, but I'm just saying. So like the setup is, (laughs) if Howard releases some of its buildings Mm -hmm. and land, it mm-hmm. will create a better future mm-hmm. for future Howard students is the right. logic. Mm-hmm. But you're talking about a kind of um, political intervention into mm-hmm. the question of what is a community like around Howard and mm-hmm. what is it going to be in 100 years? Right. So tell me a little bit about how you think about these questions about gentrification and mm-hmm. what's happening in D.C. and your deep love for your college. Mm-hmm. I guess this is actually the one thing that separates HBCUs from any other college. I really do believe that HBCUs have an additional, like a duty or a commitment to people of color around the world, to the diaspora. I really do believe that in addition to just being an academic institution, Howard has been like the uh, almost like up among the center of the of, of several movements of several you know the movement against apartheid against the civil rights you know, the civil rights movement and so when I look at what they teach us in the classroom right and then I see what the administration is doing there's a huge divide and there always has been a divide so we sit in class and we're learning about you know economic development and how African Americans are being affected by gentrification I'm, I'm this is a real story. I'm in class. I'm learning about gentrification and how you know company or businesses are buying up land and they're you know they're forcing out people of low income. And then I get a, a notice from our president saying we're going to be developing some apartments on across the street from our dormitories, and this is going to be a revenue stream for us. And so it's like, how do I reconcile what you were literally teaching me and then what you are doing? And is that what motivated you to participate in Absolutely. your neighborhood council? Absolutely. I'm someone who's who's dealt with housing insecurity, you know, def- dealt with evictions, dealt with you know periodic homelessness, and so coming to a university that affirms me in every way, right, except for as a person from a low-income family. Howard does a lot for low-income students. Let me be clear. I'm on a full ride to Howard. I wouldn't be at college, in college, you know, probably if it weren't, you know, for the aid that they've, they've given me. But it's just so hard to know that the families in D.C. that are that are coming to these community meetings and complaining because they don't know how they're going to hold on one more month, that's me. That's my mom. You know, and back home, that's what we're dealing with. And so even though I get, you know, this eight-month break from that reality, I can't pretend like that's not who I am. And so when you are a Howard student and someone, you've got your gear on Mm -hmm. and you're like, bison till I die, Mm -hmm. and you're in in Shaw Mm -hmm. and people are looking Looking at at you. I mean, what is that like? Because there is, again, this unity versus disunity. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of black people Mm -hmm. in Shaw, but they're not all affiliated with Howard. And how do you navigate those tensions? And then how Mm -hmm. do you kind of play a role as a as a leader in that community with these two identities. Right. It, I'm going to be real. It hurts to Aww. see black people looking at me as if I'm one of them. Because I'm like, no, I'm one of you. I'm you. Like, I really am you. To have black people, you know, think that I'm elitist, that's, that hurts. You know, I've spent, I've spent my, my short 20 years on this earth, you know, talking about the 10% and, you know, how the talented 10th are not, you know, they, you know, just dogging the talented 10th. And now I realize that just by coming to college, I'm a part of a privileged group. That, that disgusts me. 
because I at least thought that like Howard would be. I thought that when I came to Howard, there were going to be homeless shelters that they operated. I thought I, I was idealistic, I guess. And I'm a college student, so I get I, that, I, that's my experience. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful vision. Right. But I, I just having them. They, they resent Howard students a lot. Many DC residents, especially people, the African American DC residents, resent you know us for some of the things that we've done, some of the promises that haven't been kept. Um, and that's why when I, I said it when I ran, I want to bridge the gap. I want to reconnect. But then I realized that it wasn't just like they didn't like us because they didn't like us. There were actual decisions that we've made, promises that we haven't kept that have created this divide. And you know, my 17-year-old self was not enough to bridge this gap. You entered when you were 17? I ran when I was 17. I was elected a month, a week after my 18th birthday. So how did you like mount a campaign? <laughs> Um, my best friends at Howard, yeah, that net Howard network, we uh, were on our bikes knocking on doors. I, I actually, I ran during the summertime, and so Howard students were not on campus to even elect me. I had to get elected by D.C. residents. And so my message was for them. My, my, you know, my campaign was geared toward them and talking about the things that I wanted to get done and talking about how I want, you know, to talk some sense to Howard. It's been hard. It's yeah. been so hard. So but, this, is a weird, this is a position I see a lot of, young black women occupying on their college campuses. You are in everyone's face <laughs> and you are just you're just reading the situation to everybody mm-hmm. and you are one of the most celebrated students. You are incredibly accomplished. You're going to be student government president. You won a Truman scholarship. And so that te- that tension between your pain and everyone's side mm-hmm. and you're actually a crown jewel of a Howard education, mm-hmm. how do you navigate that experience with the administration? I think a better question is how they're navigating it. Um, because, I mean, I mean, I'll be real. There will be times when um, I know that the people in the A building, they just can't stand me. Like, they'll, they just, can, what can we do about Allison Carpenter? Like, Lord, somebody take the mic from this girl. <laughs> I know um, when, I was, when I was going to Oxford, when I got the first scholarship, the Lord scholarship, um, there was a little bit of a difference between what it cost and how much I had. And they, they searched endlessly to find the money and not because listen i'm not going to say it's because they love me so much but a, a year without alice carpenter on campus oh, that's so <laughs> a year without me on campus is it was i guess a relief for them but um i came back while studying abroad to run for sga president you know flying back and forth and I'm like hey, hey guys you haven't got rid of me yet <laughs> but um for me it i just when i say howard when i wear howard on my chest i'm not talking about dr frederick and his administration I'm talking about my classmates. I'm talking about the faculty who pour into me. I'm talking about my mentors on campus. But I don't have anything for the administration. Um, I'm here for the Howard students, Howard alum. I'm t- when we talk about Howard's legacy, very rarely are we talking about you know former presidents. We're talking about Thurgood. We're talking, you know what I mean? Like we're not talking about the the suits. That's interesting. And so when you think about. Um bridging this type of DC world that you have Mm -hmm. and then when you go home to Cleveland Mm. I think this is interesting because I went to Cleveland a couple years ago and it was the day LeBron said he was coming back and I was like oh Jesus has returned on earth people didn't know what to do with themselves and um, I was getting a ride to the airport and this young man was like he had run the numbers in his head he's Mm -hmm. like okay LeBron's coming back I'm going to start Uber I'm going to start Lyft (laughs) I'm about to get paid everyone was so excited Excited, right? Which, on one hand, I was like, I guess this is a really beautiful hometown moment. But I'm like, there's 
something wrong in this economy. <laughs> that LeBron James returning to the Cavaliers is providing this much hope, <laughs> right? right. Um, and hotels were opening because they were anticipating the RNC. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is not, these are not sustainable economies. Right. You know, doing Uber, the side hustle you have at the front desk of a hotel, <laughs> this isn't what builds strong communities, right. but it's so hopeful. Right. So surely some of the things that you're learning in D.C. Mm-hmm. translate when you go back to Cleveland. Yeah. Well, uh, the first thing, when I first went back to Cleveland, I, I'm, I just a new sense of confidence, I guess. I called my mayor and I said, I want to meet with you. You know, I want to meet with you ASAP, right? I'm 17. Pray for me. And um, <laughs> I say to my mayor, I was like, what are you doing about gentrification? Because we cannot let what's happening in D.C. happen in Cleveland. Mm. And Frank Jackson looked at me in the most pessimistic way, and he says, it's already happening, and I don't know what to do about it. And And so I think that Cleveland is a city that, you know, we take our little victories. Um, it's it's a city that's been devastated by so many different you know events, and so something like LeBron coming back home, we knew what the economic you know implications were. We were excited about that, um, but just the chance to win something, you know, yeah. like I, I, I hate to not to be academic here, but just the chance to finally you know finally something's going our way. You know, this is everything that. I joke about this, but everything that looks like it's going to be a good thing for Cleveland it, until recently has always fallen apart. We were I was excited about the RNC, you know, coming to Cleveland. Yeah. And then Donald Trump, right? So you know, we're thinking about all these ad dollars that are going to come, all this sponsorship that's going to come, and then sponsors are just dropping like flies because of Donald Trump. Like, who, who else would that happen to? <laughs> right? Like, who else? Well, people said, I can't believe the Donald Trump. And I'm like, no, I can't because the RNC is in Cleveland this year. <laughs> Only our luck is that bad. Only we could get the greatest, you know, NBA player in probably, in you know, arguably history and then make it to the finals and then everyone gets injured and we lose in 2015. Like, that only happens in Cleveland. So, well, oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, but what are you going to do when you return to Cleveland? Have, to change the tide, I I have no I have no idea I mm-hmm. I don't I I don't know you mm-hmm. know and I think that I'm still learning it I'm still in DC I'm still learning I'm trying to figure out you know I I guess my vision for an economy is one that actually affirms Black people I'm not just about Cleveland like Cleveland is cool but there's a lot you know I'm more concerned about how can not just in Cleveland but all over the country how can we create an economy that is trying to figure out, does capitalism work for black folk, basically? What can we do to make sure that <clears throat> that people of color are not continuously left out and, you know, every single time something looks like it's going to move forward for us, it's still, you know, we're still the disadvantaged ones. You look at marijuana legalization, right? Like, Don't get me started. I, I'm not going to get you started. Don't get me started not, on that. But it's just like... I was just in Denver for 12 days. <laughs> right. And, um, okay, I, I guess we're having this conversation. Having so right. here's the thing that I think is fascinating about marijuana legalization. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it's no people of color are profiting, no. profiting from we're it. We're going to jail still. And the other thing about it, though, I had an opportunity to do a leadership program where I got to hear from the governor of Colorado, mm-hmm. and someone asked him about it. And he said something like, half the money that's generated from this industry goes into a special fund that pays for the unintended consequences of legalization. So it's not like all these tax dollars flood you know, the state and they're available. So that money has to be saved. And then a portion of it goes to drug rehab for kids, which the irony isn't lost. But what it also does, it puts more police on the street, and they're policing people who are driving while high. And so we all know some of the consequences of hyper-policing and surveillance. And so as all of these people are celebrating this 
new progressive <laughs> era of legalization. And I'm like, for who, for what, for when? Right. It, it, we still lose. And, and we're losing. And so the, the question is then, I guess this is a 2016 kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have no doubt that you will be the rising star of a political party at some point. Mm. No? That yeah, you that, will be. That doesn't even sound like a. I, I appreciate you saying that, but that doesn't even sound like a compliment anymore. You know what I mean? Wow, like, that's. Is it, tell me more. I mean, I hate to be a millennial right now, but it's just like. No, I like millennials. Oh, cool. Rare. <laughs> um, but I, I guess I've run for office. You know, I care about the political system, but it's. I think that I'm reimagining ways for me to 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 disrupt, I guess, and to to. to to be a part of change, I guess, or to create change. I, and I'm not sure that political office is the best way right now. You know, and you look at the political the political parties right now, I'm, I'm you know, we'll vote for Hillary in, in November. Um, but the rising star of a political party, what does that even mean today? What is that? You know what I well, mean? Well, like, I mean, I think that's I think that's why we're in this mess because right. no no stars were being cultivated. I mean, we I have, don't think there was we a have bench. The Cory Bookers, we have the. But I'm saying I'm still like. I don't know if that's a good bench though. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. Like, if you wanted to continue, I like Cory pol- Booker, but I should, I'm sure he's yeah, great yeah. and he's lovely. But and like, he runs his own that Twitter. Radical, I guess I, it's because no it's one's po- doing politics or I mean. You know the blood warshed thing. Right. So, so pol- political office is not necessarily the place for radicals. Right. And at the same time, I love a world in which you run at mm-hmm. seventeen mm-hmm. and you get this political education. Mm-hmm. And I believe more in the political system mm-hmm. when people like you run. Right. Okay. And you're saying really woke stuff, yeah. and you're trying to make it work. But there's a problem when mm-hmm. two years of it, and you're like, you know what, I'm good. I mean, I, first of all, the type of government that I did was not the type that we see on TV. You know, like I'm talking about potholes and things like that. Which is local what, government. Which is real, but it's where it happens. ANCs. If, if I could mm-hmm. do work with like policing, which ANCs are not doing work with policing, then I think that I would have been more fulfilled because that's where I think I think that local government is where people where people mm-hmm. of color should focus. Personally, mm-hmm. um, I, I know that we're so quick to want to run for Congress and you know the Congressional Black Caucus, but um, but I think that we need to have people of color focusing at the local level. Maybe not as local as I was at, but I don't know. It's just as a young person, I'm not inspired mm-hmm. right now. I'm completely uninspired. Um, what I, there are activists who I find, you know, to be inspiring, but the people who are holding office right now, honestly, make me, you know, worried mm-hmm. they're, because they're not trying to. There, no one is trying to restructure American capitalism. No one is trying to, you know, we can say we want to reform this, reform that. I don't think that reform is necessarily what we need right now. The, the 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 foundation is wrong, right? Like the foundation says that I'm three fifths. The foundation is it doesn't validate me as a black woman, and so maybe we just need to redo everything. I know I sound like a, a young person, and no, I know I not at I'm all. Saying, like, I think just, you're sounding. I mean, I I think it's very politically right. mature to say. Maybe we don't participate, and at the same Everything, time, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking New Jim Crow, fellow Truman, Michelle Alexander. Oh my gosh, the New Jim Crow, the most important book for your generation. But Absolutely. I think that, but I do think that that's interesting because the way that you are able to stay connected to a place like Howard, mm-hmm. that is deeply institutional, <laughs> that is deeply rooted, right? Yeah. In this yeah. thing, right? Mm-hmm. But there is something that is happening with the people on that campus mm-hmm. that animates its values and mm-hmm. its and its best self. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if there's a place for young people to also feel that. And it may not be politics, it may be activism, mm-hmm. it may be on the streets, but it but I but I know that that is there because mm-hmm. I see it in you, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the future and when you think about the path <coughs> for you, where do you see 
where do you see yourself taking this energy? I don't know anymore. I could. I would normally tell you I want to run for you know Senate one day. Mm-hmm. I want to be an elected official. I don't know right now. This was a 2016 has been a weird year for politics to say the least. You know, and uh, the more I'm learning, um, I'm realizing that. Maybe the ways that if if I'm confined to the Constitution, which, you know, I would be, (laughs) what if I have problems with the Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. What if I have problems with with some of the... What if I I disagree with the Founding Fathers? I would be running to, you know, protect a document that I disagree with. I would be running... I would be, you know, holding office when I'm literally swearing to uphold the Constitution. What if I don't want to uphold the Constitution? You know what I mean? Like I, and so I, I think I'm being more critical about that and, and, and thinking more seriously. Now that I'm getting older and closer to that age where you can run for you know higher office, I don't know. So I see myself right now working outside, work, working outside of the, the system, I guess. And when you think about um, what going to Howard has taught you so far, mm-hmm. what is the thing that you think will be most enduring? I think it's that that these struggles, that these movements are aren't that these movements aren't done in a day. I guess uh, that it's a. I guess you know the struggle continues. I guess is what I'll take away from it. That every single day I have to wake up with the with one goal in my mind, and that's to unravel this thing that we have. Um, that's been holding us back for so long and that that's not going to get done in a semester or four years. You know, which is how my mind works. Like, we're going to knock this out <laughs> this week. But um, Next week, capitalism. No, right. But I think that that's the one drawback for my generation. Our attention spans are just so, you know. But I think that Howard is teaching me that if you really want to change something, if you really want to 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 revolutionize something, you have to, to stay at it. You have to build coalitions. You have to just focus on that thing and just commit to it and just sacrifice for it and just you know keep at it even if even if it doesn't feel like you're even getting close to the end just keep at it um the struggle continues yes it does and now i'm going to close with the last question that i ask Mm -hmm. all my guests Mm -hmm. if there's one thing about you that you wish your professors knew or Mm -hmm. that you could just say what would it be I respect them so much, and I wish... I, I, the greatest part of my time at Howard University has been because of the faculty. The greatest, the, the greatest gift that I've, I've received from being at Howard University is every moment spent in their classrooms. And I just wish, I wish they would invite administrators in, into their classes. Just wish that we could be, at, in a, as an institution, all on the same page, all committed to the same values. I wish we all had the same education. Mm, That's beautiful. Thank you so much for joining me, Allison. That was so good. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marcia Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Visit Office Hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, on Instagram at Office Hours Podcast, on Facebook at Office Hours A Podcast. Tune in each week on iTunes and Acast.